Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter Three. Brightness came from the ship's exterior floods, but there was a gleaming haze, too, and from all directions. It looked only meters away. A hissing, sizzling noise came through the plastic hood over my terrified, gasping breaths as the air outside the suit spread out and destroyed itself. It passed through the termination point of this pocket dimension, hitting a wall that wasn't there. The universe was just a tiny moat of reality in an endless sea of nothingness, not even vacuum. Outside this bubble, matter and energy simply ceased to be. There were no laws of physics to support them. The air threw back a telltale mist of high-energy protons and photons as its molecules were unzipped and dashed into memory. But then more light flashed, much brighter this time, in shades of watery red, and I heard a metallic scream as the deck segment tumbling away met a similar fate as the air. That wasn't a minor energy bath. And if I hit the edge of the bubble, I would disappear as well. It's not in our mandate, I argued and even made the hopeless attempt to win the point with the actual written statement we'd all signed, which I tried to call up on the tri-D overhead. I couldn't find it right away and dropped the effort as the conversation went on. He's right, Stina agreed, and I think she started to do the same, or maybe not, because she would have found it for sure, but never did produce the stupid thing. UH didn't send us all this way just to come back empty-handed, Chris replied. They want information, and right now we don't have any. We actually have a lot, John corrected, and brought up a long list of analyses the sensor spech team had collated already. He spread it out, overlaying on half of Stina's window. Hey, we have facts, but what do we really know? I mean, think about it. They have a ship of the line posted here to protect something. If it's not a military buildup, at least that part is a military action. Again, I stated with a shake of my head, it's not why we're here. As mission leader, Chris countered, it's my call. This isn't the mission you're supposed to lead. He stood back and studied me for a bit, his athletic build highlighted in his tight short sleeves. You honestly aren't curious. Of course I am, 
I replied. But that's not what UH wants, and anything we do from this point on is simply spying. We're supposed to help keep a treaty, not break one. They don't know we're here, am I right, John? They have no idea, SS-1 agreed, and brought up another table of data, overlaying it on the other half of Stina's window. Hey! Chris thought about it for a while, studying first John, then me, and then the lists. Okay, we'll do it this way. Despite the data and despite the expert opinions aboard, I, as mission leader and Mirsham management representative, am still unconvinced that this isn't a military buildup, and I want a closer look. But it's not true, Stina stated simply. It is if I log it that way, Chris replied with a tight smile. There was nothing more to argue at this point. The boss wanted a closer look. Okay, I conceded with a shrug. Where do we go? Mavis, he called forward. How long would it take us to get to that station? She brought up a navigation map of the system on the Tri-D, controlling it from her cockpit chair. Orbits and vectors blanketed the entire display, covering up the last of Stina's window. Come on! Sorry, the pilot offered, her voice piped to the display's speakers so she didn't have to shout. A dotted course line projected a possible circuitous route for us around the primary and over to the station's general location. Several minor changes Mavis had made in our exact orbit and approach appeared as calculations to one side, and the vector line adjusted accordingly a second later. If we're still looking to be subtle, she concluded after a few moments, I can get us in that neighborhood in about 40 hours. Sounds good. Chris pronounced. Lay in the course and let's get going. Stina had closed all the displays on the Tri-D except her own, but now no one was looking at whatever point she'd never tried to make, so she humphed and closed that one too. All this for some ghost data? I asked the ML. I'm not convinced it is, Chris argued. Neither am I, John added. Even Stina nodded, saying... The vector line wasn't a product of incomplete data. It just stopped. Well, if what you showed me was all you had, I stated, I'm not willing to say it was a spacecraft that was destroyed. First off, there was no identification for it, no transponder on the standard channels. Just that name, Jaybird. With the resolution of our sensors, we should definitely have seen signs of an energy burst and debris if it had exploded. There's nothing. I don't know what else to say except that whatever Jaybird was, its vector did continue on, but sensors somehow missed it. Even if there was a hiccup, SS-1 debated, if we project the vector out further in the same apparent orbit, we still get nothing. He brought the now-familiar system map up once again, creating a time-lapse projection of the orbital line. It was colored dark green until the point where it stopped, then continued on in a lighter shade around the star. See? John reasoned. We don't pick it up again. It's just gone. He emphasized this point by accelerating the timeline by several hours. The vector never reappeared from the far side of the star. Maybe it changed course during that time? Left the area? It could even have been destroyed when it was out of our sight. 
He thought about that a bit, then opened the view even wider. Stina helped organize the depicted data and objects and spacecraft that had been tracked by Shady Lady during that sequence of events appeared on the display as she plugged in the appropriate tables of information. John then reran the timeline. See? Still nothing. If it was destroyed, you'd think someone would go take a look. It's just gone. Could this be some kind of stealth technology? I asked, feeling really stumped. Something they can just turn on and off? Well, I don't know, SS1 replied thoughtfully. Maybe. But then why didn't they turn it off? There's no sign of it in any similar orbits even if we go ahead for days. And he did so, with dozens of other vectors spinning around the primary crazily. Wait, 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 Chris commanded. You're making me dizzy. Center it on the station this time and run the timeline. Maybe it comes back at some point. So he zoomed in on the space station over at the Lagrange point and reset the timeline. Okay, John said as the depicted hours ticked off in the corner of the image, one every couple of seconds. And right about now, this is when the vector stops over near the star. Slow it down, we'll just watch, Chris muttered as the timeline progressed. John cranked it back to about one minute per second. A couple small vessels came and went in the first hour depicted, their IDs announcing them as a shuttle and two maintenance bots. We kept watching. Two hours further on, an unidentified vector arrived at the station and was taken fully aboard. That's it, Chris cried, stabbing the image above our heads and throwing strange shadows. Zoom out and replay it. With the map surrounding the Lagrange point pulled to a larger view, the sensor specialists manipulated the data to add extra detail, and then progressed the timeline once more. The mysterious vector just appeared in Mylag Vernier's general vicinity and proceeded to it at moderate speed. No way, I breathed, not believing what I saw. Further out, further out, Chris ordered, plainly as stunned and excited as I was, as we all were now. The map reformed to fully encompass Lagrange Point 2, as well as the orbit that the vanishing vector had used. John played it forward in slow motion, and all of us gasped, even Mavis up in her cockpit watching on her own feed. He did it again, and it was no less stunning. Finally... John rewound it to just before the disappearance and let it play in real time. The mysterious vessel cruised along easily and then vanished. Immediately, it, or one exactly like it, appeared nearly 80 million kilometers away. It was now only a couple hours' reasonable ride from the station. Chris reached up and rewound it himself, this time going all the way back to when the vessel whatever it was, first started on its little voyage. It takes that thing nearly a day to reach that solar orbit, he stated, though we could all see it plainly. Then it instantly jumps back here. Dieter had been sitting back for most of the arguing, looking as hungover as usual and, for the most part, hardly seeming to care one way or the other. But he'd been startled by this, just like the rest of us, and now he leaned forward. 
You say jumped, Chris, but it didn't. It couldn't. It's impossible for any vessel this deep into a system's gravity shadow to transition into or out of jump space. That was a simple fact, one we all knew. Since the dawn of so-called faster-than-light travel, it had been the one reality that everyone, everywhere, lived with and understood. Star jump was impossible within high gravitational distortions. Such a field extended like a shadow into the artificial pocket universe created by a starship's jump engine. Only in the absence of such a strong field could star jump be initiated. Even trying it on the periphery of one ran the heavy risk of a misjump. That kind of accident could range in severity, from minor inconvenience to true catastrophe, depending upon the degree of space-time imbalance. It was, therefore, standard practice to fly well out of a gravity shadow before ever initiating a jump. Most well-trafficked systems had stations and settlements at or near the edge of a star system's shadow so as to minimize travel times. It was as deep as a ship could ever make a jump to or from a system, an understood and accepted reality of star travel. Give us any graviton readings recorded during this period, Chris ordered. John immediately pulled up a dialogue of options off to one side, chose one, and inserted the new data into the model overhead. He replayed it, and there they were, clear as day an exit and entry cone, coinciding with the magic skipping vector line. In fact, they were extremely obvious and unusually large, now that anyone thought to look for them. Well, that just doesn't make any sense, I stated stupidly, disbelievingly. Stina just looked around at us all. This is some kind of research project, right? She asked it as if it were the easiest thing ever to comprehend and accept. Well, then, this is, I started to say, but stumbled. Huge, Chris finished for me, replaying the timeline again, and then again. Bigger than huge, I burst out. It changes everything. I'll say, Mavis put in, agreeing loudly over her shoulder from up front. Anybody with engines like that could travel right to their destination without using main drives at all. They could just jump from one station to another directly and never need to ride in from the edge of the system. It would save weeks of travel, Dieter agreed. You'd be there instantly. I mean, if your calcs were sharp enough, you could even travel from planet to planet without ever entering space. What would subjective time inside the jump bubble be like? John wondered aloud. I have no idea, Dieter replied, studying the loop replay. But that aspect might not have been studied much yet. If the engineers haven't started multi-system star jump trials, then the ships likely haven't gone far enough for them to be able to measure that with accuracy. Assuming Jaybird experiences the same kind of time distortion as a normal drive, then this trip right here would have taken... Oh, I don't know, a second or two? From the crew's point of view, I mean. It was instantaneous in our dimension anyway, just like normal. But a new paradigm might mean a new set of ranges for temporal displacement. Outside of theory, there'd be no way to know until someone tries. Once word gets out, 
Chris pronounced. Every ship in space will want one of these engines. He glanced at me now with an air of triumph. Still want to go home? We had been able to maintain a slow, steady approach to our new orbit. Trusting in the mojo and know-how of the stealth technologists who had designed Shady Lady's outer hull was not easy for me. This whole cloak-and-dagger thing was new and, frankly, quite uncomfortable. I really didn't intend, even now after discovering something so amazing, to pursue this kind of work anymore. If there was a way to parlay it into a better position with less risk and quasi-legality, I'd definitely be searching for it. In point of fact, I felt us more in danger on this cruise with some of the most advanced stealth tech I'd ever seen and a weapon environment that rivaled the best anywhere in this ship class than I would have had we been on a high-value cargo run aboard some old, unarmed hauler tub out in the pioneer worlds, where piracy can be a real problem. With something like this new jump engine to hide, it would be an easy choice, even a likely one, for the handshake to destroy any and all interlopers out of hand. I doubted we'd even thought all the implications through yet, but you could bet your credit that the corporate space bigwigs had. It was also certain that a secret this big couldn't remain one forever. Sooner or later, this would get out, either through official channels or cloak-and-dagger ones like, well, like us. Either way, it would represent a sea change. Even if the tech was far from ready or had severe limitations, the very knowledge of its existence would be electric on the movers and shakers in all the industries of space. I sat at my station, weapons ready, though not powered up and hot. Mavis had brought us down to a crawl, and we'd maneuvered slowly near the orbit of the station, only about 50,000 kilometers back, following the same solar track it was on with PS2GG. We moved without using thrusters or the main drive at this point, just stabilized and watching. How long do we have to wait for the next test? The ship's captain asked from her cockpit. She rarely left there, in fact, only getting up to use the fresher now and then and to grab meals and drinks. She never seemed to sleep and eschewed the company of people, which was something I liked about her. Chris was in the common room with the sensor special twins, and he seemed to spend a lot of time now keeping them from arguing about really juvenile things. We're doing a comprehensive stat check on all the highly encrypted chatter that got archived, John answered. According to cracked communications, it looks like another flight test is pending. That info is days old, though. The latest stuff is still decoding. There could have been a schedule change in the meantime. We'll know in a few hours. As sneaky as this ship is, Dieter stated from Engineering on the Open Channel. There's no way we can physically follow the test vessel out to its jump-off without being spotted. The engineers and scientists, to say nothing of orbital control, will be monitoring every element of the trial theater. 
We're hard to see, sure, but they'll be looking hard for problems, in every possible variable. We're not moving in, Chris assured him, and the rest of us. I just want a closer view of the process. If we have actual optical vid of this thing in action, we'll be, well, heroes, I supplied. Not in corporate space, and maybe not in the Senate back home either, when they learn they have a major industrial espionage crisis to deal with. I'm getting really sick of this conversation, Ejak. Right. Gotcha. So I shut up and checked my equipment. I monitored the area. I listened and waited. Later that same shift, we had an update from John. Okay, the latest batch of decryptions talk about the next ship trial going forward in just about 23 hours from now. There's mention of certain procedures in place if there's an abort or delay, including the reshuffling of a few support craft farther on. I'm not seeing any of that, so we can probably assume the test is still on. That left time on our hands. From a purely dispassionate point of view, this was not the best direction for this mission to take. But I wasn't so removed from it that I couldn't see the importance. The basic momentum this breakthrough would have, once public, would be like a tide across the stars. That would have been hyperbole only the day before. Now, it was possibly an understatement. Who wouldn't want this? Who wouldn't need it? How would it change spaceflight and, more specifically, my profession? I put a few sims in to run automatically so as to check the results of some variables I'd come up with after looking a little more closely at the public info available on that linebreaker cruiser Liquidator. It seemed likely the officers took the ship's name and their responsibilities seriously, especially in this situation. Maybe they'd even be desirous of a chance to prove their value. I didn't intend to give them that opportunity, and if my sims bore out my theory, we could avoid a clash entirely, even if we were somehow spotted. The technical specs on the stealth suite we sported were not exactly an open book for me, since most such elements were need-to-know, but I had full access to those aspects that bore directly upon the defense of the ship. We could vanish from full view with a silent running approach, but only if we could gain a moment's distraction. Liquidator had top-of-the-line sensors for a military vessel, but the station likely had even better. The scientists and engineers would need them to monitor every single aspect of the ship's trials. We had also picked up pings from all over the inner star system from a huge number of monitor drones tied into the test network. These robots didn't seem to sport fine-grained sensors, but they would allow the builders a tight view of the experimental vessel at all times. This meant much more than us keeping out of sight. We might have to actually get them to look the other way, as it were. And that's what I was reaching for with my sims. It was all quiet and unremarkable, except for one small thing. During the previous shift, Stina broke in on the open channel and announced that she'd picked up some faint transmissions that didn't correspond to any of the vessels or drones we'd yet plotted in the system. 
This raised eyebrows for a few minutes, until John, just irritated by her voice, I think, pointed to records of several other hard-to-read signals, and then directed her to the textbook description of some obscure effect known as Doppler Echo. It was described as junk noise from stellar interference that combined harmonically in a very specific way with human signaling. It was uncommon, though well-documented, and involved stuff called cascading chaoticism, instrument over-precision, and hyper-focused data sets. I didn't understand any of it, but based on Stina's sudden silence, I guessed that she did. Eventually, I racked out, having put in over two shifts straight by this point, but it was hard to sleep. I just laid there, sipping Wasserman from a red cup with cute, swirly patterns. SS1 was in his place in the common room, which by now could have used a new name, considering it was the sensor specialist's actual duty station. Stino was in the fresher, Mavis up front, and Chris was snoring quietly in the next bunk over. Dieter must have been back in engineering, and I suspected he had built a nest for himself in there for close monitoring of the ship's many systems. Only he and Mavis had the clearance to enter engineering due to the classified and proprietary nature of the stealth tech. Siddle, speaking for Meerschaum, had been very specific on this point to us all. Again, it was need to know, and only the ship's engineer and captain really did. At any rate, I was on my back, drinking red runoff and thinking about the future. A universe with instant travel. A universe where no one had to wait, terrified, on an approaching missile strike, or wonder if that dodgy little freighter with the fake transponder was a threat. A universe where you could just jump away if anyone came at you, no matter where you found yourself in a star system. In such a future, who would need a professional gunner? Who would need or want an ex-gunner with a mixed bag of unrelated qualifications that always put him behind the first pick for other positions? I had a terrifying flash, then, of an old spacer with my name, the butt of jokes, drifting from station to station, begging for attention with his ancient stories, and maybe begging for work on the new ships he barely understood and likely despised. That future was foggy and depressing. I couldn't grasp my life there at all with what I knew about this one. No one would see things the same way once this tech went into mass production. Certainly no one who might be interested in hiring me. Doris would have a hard sell with her golden boy in that place, and I decided I didn't want to find myself there with a profession that only a dinosaur would recognize. A galaxy in motion required people in motion. But I still wanted to be here. Out in this vacuum, working, traveling, seeing, and learning. I thought about it long and hard until I finally drifted off. But by then I had a plan, and it started by getting through this job.
You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.